0: Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Jefferson Smith from Portland, Oregon. It is Tuesday, September 15th. It's a good day to subscribe to The Local. You can forward to a friend and find us on all the platforms through Linktree. That's linktree.ee backslash the local Portland. Today, way back in the day, September 15th, 1616, the first free public school opened its doors in Europe. The school was located in Frischati, near Rome. Catholic priest Jose da Calasanz had a passion for education and opened public schools to make education more accessible to non-wealthy families. And today, back in the day, September 15, 1969, a demonstration of about 7,000 people protested nuclear weapons testing in Alaska. Demonstrators expressed concerns of earthquakes and tsunamis that could occur from testing on fault lines. One committee from the demonstrations They chartered a ship, named it Greenpeace. The Greenpeace organization is now one of the largest non-governmental environmental groups in the world. And today, back in the day, September 15, 1935, Bill Hanley died in Pendleton, Oregon. He was known as the Sage of Harney Valley, Bill Hanley was a cattle baron turned conservationist and progressive advocate. Born in Jacksonville, Oregon, he settled south of Burns and became one of the most influential people in the region. He counted among his personal friends, William Howard Taft, William Jennings Bryan. His personal political views were aligned with his friend and fellow bull moose progressive, Theodore Roosevelt. His close friends included literary figures like C.E.S. Wood, poet Edward Markham. The sculptor, Alex Proctor and his family actually lived on the Hanley Ranch for over a year. And before heading to Alaska, On the cross-country flight that took his life, Will Rogers stopped in Burns to refuel his aircraft and to see his friend Bill Hanley. In 1914, he was the progressive Bull Mooses Party candidate for the U.S. Senate seat from Oregon. He came in third in a five-person race. He did pretty well in those progressive bastions of Harney and Malheur counties in rural eastern Oregon and in the state's urban center of Portland. He also ran unsuccessfully for governor of Oregon, also on a progressive platform. Bill Hanley died today back in the day, 15th of September, 1935, while celebrating Bill Hanley Day at the Pendleton Roundup. The Roundup organizers had invited him to attend a day of events that were dedicated to the sage of Harney County. He got big cheers, big ovations at every stop, and shortly after the final event, he had a heart attack. He died the next morning at the home of a friend. If you have any more questions about this stuff, I suppose you can Google it. And you can do that because today, back in the day, September 15th, 1997, the google.com domain name was registered. Today we will have your quick six headlines. We'll also have Mike Seelig from partner station KXRW and an interview with journalist Greg Pallast. We'll also have an interview with writer Emma Mair. She's a national writer but lives in Klamath Falls, Oregon. She'll talk about the interaction between nature and humans. A poignant topic now for Oregon with wildfires impacting communities. X-ray. First up, it is today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. The smoke continues without rain predicted yet. The rain that was forecast for today will mostly hit the coast. It's now apparent the smoke won't clear until Thursday or Friday. Smoky skies were expected to start clearing on Sunday, but that didn't happen. And Portland still has the number one worst air in the world. Air quality alert has been extended until Thursday. And the National Weather Service has said Thursday or Friday is when Portlanders will be able to take full, non-smoke-filled breaths for the first time in a while. A man was arrested for starting at least seven bushfires along I-205. Domingo Lopez Jr. was arrested along the freeway near East Burnside Street on Sunday. He admitted to lighting the fire using a Molotov cocktail and was booked in Multnomah County's detention center on charges of reckless burning and second-degree disorderly conduct. Police released him and then arrested him again on Monday morning for allegedly starting six more small fires along the west side of I-205. After that second arrest, he was transported to a hospital for a mental health evaluation and issued another six counts of reckless burning. Police did say all those fires were caught early and no one was injured and no structures were burnt. The Almeida Fire has destroyed a southern Oregon winery. Approximately 20 to 30 barrels and 12,000 bottles of simple machine winery were destroyed in those fires. The owner, Brian Denner, began making simple machine wines at another Rogue Valley wine facility back in 2010. Fortunately, the Southern Oregon wine community's generosity has moved as quick as the fire. Barrel 42, a custom crush winery in Medford, Oregon, has donated a ton of Pinot Noir grapes. Denner's also got offers of equipment, barrels, winery space from other Rogue Valley wineries. There are wonderful people doing beautiful things. Your daily dose of data. The health authority has confirmed 151 new cases. Note that's well below 200. Also two new deaths, sadly. The state's running total is now 29,484 confirmed cases and 511 confirmed COVID-related deaths. Meanwhile, the health authority has said that wildfires and hazardous air quality have caused a dip in testing numbers statewide. Therefore, it's hard to know what conclusions to draw from fewer confirmed cases. The Oregon State Public Health Laboratory was closed all Monday due to poor air quality and will not be taking samples or completing tests until that air quality is safe. Trash collection was also delayed by hazardous air quality in Portland. Garbage services scheduled for Monday have been postponed due to the smoke. The Bureau hasn't indicated when trash pickup will resume. Several other companies serving the Portland metro area have announced delays in their route schedules. Aero Sanitary and Hyberg Garbage and Recycling, both suspended services as well. You can find updates from the Bureau of Planning and Sustainability online at the portland.gov website. Ted Wheeler's campaign manager has moved on. Amy Rathfelder left the campaign about a week ago with two months left in the general election. Danny O'Halloran is the new campaign manager. O'Halloran had been political director in New Hampshire for Cory Booker's presidential campaign. A poll recently showed two-thirds disapproval among Portland voters for the mayor, and as OPB reported, Wheeler showed organizations on his voters' pamphlet statement, but no elected officials had been included. Commissioner Joanne Hardesty, who had endorsed him in the primary, said she is holding off for now. Also wanted to give a shout-out to Wildfire Emergency Mutual Aid. Collaborating Organizers are PDX Mutual Aid, Snack Block PDX, and Symbiosis PDX. Drop sites include the OSU Offsite Campus at 555 Southwest Morrison Avenue, Kitty Corner of the Pioneer Courthouse Square, Swift Agency at 1250 Northwest 17th, the Exchange from 12 to 6, 400 Southeast 12th Avenue, and Evolution of Healthcare and Fitness at 905 Southeast Ankeny during business hours. You can find out more at a lot of places, including hashtag PDX Mutual Aid. As we said, there are wonderful people doing beautiful things. And that is today's Quick 6 Local Rundown.
1: X-ray. Mike Seelig from partner station KXRW brings us an interview with journalist Greg Palast. They discuss his newest work called How Trump Stole 2020. Is fighting for voter protections more important than nightly protests? Here are Greg and Mike with more.
2: This is Mike Seelig with KXRW Radio in Vancouver. Greg Palast is a renowned investigative reporter. His books have become New York Times bestsellers. He reports for the BBC and the British newspaper, The Guardian. Greg spoke to me recently during his virtual book tour for his latest book, How Trump Stole 2020. I started our talk by asking Greg why his work wasn't picked up by US newspapers.
3: You know, it's very difficult to tell Americans, guess what, Mrs. Schneider lied to you in the sixth grade when she said in America we have a wonderful democracy where we count all the votes. We don't, we don't let everyone vote. We don't count all the votes that are cast. That's just the truth. And as an investigative reporter, uncovering something that you don't want to hear or that the mainstream doesn't want to hear. After all, Hillary Clinton said, um, uh, no, one has ever, no candidate for president has ever challenged the presidential vote. Most American elections have actually been contested. Uh, we have a big problem. It's called Jim Crow. And it's true. Um, after we have Martin Luther King's birthday off, but that doesn't mean that all of um, King's brethren get to vote in America still. And in fact, it's going backwards because Jim Crow has transformed from white sheets to spreadsheets. It's now a very sophisticated operation where uh, Jim Crow has become Dr. James Crow and now starts wiping people off by the hundreds of thousands. This is a dream. What, the, what mostly GOP, and I won't say it's all the GOP, but mostly uh, Republican voting officials have been doing, have been accomplishing the dreams of grand dragons, which uh, the, the Klansmen could never imagine would be possible, which is to wipe out black voters by the literally hundreds of thousands with the push of a button, expunging voter records from the voter rolls. Are you ready for this? 16.7 million American citizens have been removed from the voter rolls in the last two years of record keeping. That's not from Greg Palast under my hat. That's from the United States Elections Assistance Commission.
2: Portland is a hub of Black Lives Matters um, protests since May 25th, over 100 days. um, There's been violence. There's been federal stormtroopers pulling people into black vans and hauling them away. Um, There was a deadly shooting just a little while ago of a patriot prayer member that was macing some um, protesters. Um, It was just a matter of time before some crazy person shot back. Would you speak to those who are participating in those protests and tell them how black voting rights are more important than risking their lives in a, on the streets in Portland? Okay, uh, I want you to go to gregpalace.com and
3: click on the image of Latasha Brown. She is the founder, co-founder of Black Voters Matter. This woman is brilliant and you got to listen to her. And what's going to make the difference is if, is if black voters matter and black votes are counted. And if you fight for the count of the votes, that's where the battle's going to be. I mean, you know, look, um, I was very proud of my, uh, uh of my, um, uh, goddaughter who is out on the streets in Los Angeles. Um, who's from Switzerland by the way, and from uh, Ghana and, um, very proud that she was out on the street. So it's important for people to protest when something is ugly. That's, the, that's your First Amendment right. And, and there's a reason for it. We need it. But I'm going to tell you something. If you think that the protest is, that the only thing that's going to matter is, is the, the, the rumbles you have in the street, what's going to matter is the rumble at the ballot box in the end. And by the way, there could be real violence. I'm very, very concerned, Mike, about violence uh, not only Election Day, but um, the two weeks following when we open the ballots to count them. Let them, let them be violent. Let us be steadfast in the face of violence.
2: Thank you for that. Um, I've been worrying about the young people, and I've reported from down there in the protests and stuff, and they've told me, um, Volunteer Medic told me that um, the violence doesn't start till the feds come out. And they're cracking heads open and shooting tear gas. Greg Pallast, you're a very hardworking, committed, conscientious, investigative reporter. I want to thank you for your work. And I want to thank you for your time today. And I want to thank you, Mike, for your work
3: and your time. We really need you. Stay safe.
2: You can find Latasha Brown, the co-founder of Black Voters Matter, in Greg's August 28th post on his website, gregpalast.com. You can register to vote, or check to see if you're registered online. In Oregon, go to sos.oregon.gov. In Washington, go to voter.votewa.gov. Vote like your country, and your freedom depends on it, because this time around, it does. This is Mike Seelig for X-Ray FM in Portland, and KXRW Radio in Vancouver.
1: X-Ray. Joining us today is environmental reporter Emma Maris, speaking to us about her recent article in The Atlantic, titled, The West Has Never Felt So Small, as well as her new book, Rambunctious Garden, Saving Nature in a Post-Wild World. Both the article and her book focus on the intersection between human and non-human worlds and tackle ethical questions about what is good for the treatment of animals, what is good for the environment. Emma Maris grew up in Seattle, Washington, is currently based in Klamath Falls, Oregon. Here she is speaking with X-Ray's Jefferson Smith.
4: We all, the Oregon wildfires have affected everybody in Oregon in some way, at the very least, by breathing it in and being almost like a cigarette smoker without the nicotine. Smoke and flames spreading across the state have forced us into even deeper hiding. There's never been a time that's been more felt more dangerous to go outside. Uh, joining us is Emma Mayer. She's a nonfiction writer based in Cape Falls, Climate Falls, here to discuss a recent article in the Atlantic. The West has never felt so small, as well as her upcoming book. Emma, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Great to be here
4: we normally try to start our interviews with something a bit lighthearted. How are you holding up? Are you finding any silver lining in the craziness of 2020? Has there been any, any good news in your world?
1: Yeah, I think so because I think that, you know, there's a real possibility that the intensity of this moment will actually bring more people into the fold of organizing and campaigning for action on climate change. Um, It's, a real pity that this, you know, that, that things got so bad, but maybe that now that things are so bad, there'll be, you know, even more um, calls for action. So that's where I'm putting my hopes for a silver lining.
4: You focus your work on the relationship between people and nature,
1: say more about
4: climate change and the role that that is that now the dominant theme of your, how you see the relationship between people and nature?
1: Well, I think climate change, um, because climate change is everywhere across the entire planet at the same time, even places that humans don't spend a lot of time, it does change the sort of philosophical relationship between humans and non-humans. You know, the idea that there are places out there that are sort of untouched by humanity is, is something that we can't really hold on to anymore. And that was something that really sparked my earlier work, uh, Rambunctious Garden. Um, and, and it's something that still continues to be a big theme because we have to ask ourselves, what does it mean to have a good relationship with the rest of the world in a world that we have shaped so thoroughly?
4: recent article, the West has never felt so small. Why does it feel so small? Because we feel connected? or because we're locked in, shut in, and claustrophobic.
1: That's the, it's the second one for me. I mean, I grew, I grew up in the West, and one thing that I always liked about our region is the sense of possibility and space and, and the, the sense that, you know, there's a lot of public land we can normally access. So it, there's a, a lot of open road out there. And in previous summers when there's been wildfire smoke that's been bad, I've been able to escape with my kids Uh, you know from one part of the west to another let's go to the coast or let's go see my family in seattle but this wildfire season is so intense that you know we'd have to at this point go to someplace like salt lake city or uh, las vegas to get clean air and and then there's the pandemic which means that traveling is a lot more complicated than normal and it's very difficult and risky so I feel a sense of claustrophobia stuck in my house with the smoke pressing against the windows that I haven't felt in the West before, and it really kind of breaks my heart.
4: Are you you're based in Climate Falls now?
1: That's right. Yeah, I'm here now, and we're, you know, we're on the east side of the Cascade Ridge, and so it's a little not. I mean, yesterday it was hazardous all day. Today we're we're merely in the unhealthy, so we have it better than you today
4: congratulations for having unhealthy air never thought i'd say that but i congratulate you for having unhealthy air uh, we're often taught that there's a benefit of wildfires in the environment that's part of the process how does that claim stand up now or how might it be different now
1: the so wildfires are a part of the West, at least some parts of the West. You know where I live, east of the mountains. You know many ecosystems are thoroughly adapted to to fairly frequent, but lower intensity fires. Um, so you know trees like ponderosa pine have a, have evolved a certain kind of bark that helps them withstand a, a, a low intensity fire. These are ecosystems that are that are that play well with fire, but not this kind of fire. That the, the the drought that we're seeing, the dryness that we're seeing, and of course the buildup of fuels means that these fires are just way, way, way more intense. They're hotter, they're faster, and they're see- And as we're seeing right now, they're more frequently on the west side, the-, the wetter ecosystems that are not as fire adapted. So I think there's a real difference between a fire that an ecosystem is kind of used to and, and knows how to... Uh, for lack of a better word react you know bounce back from and, and work with and these kind of fires which are much more destructive
4: former republican state legislator in oregon julie Parrish, uh, just got published in the washington post just had an op-ed making the case that environmentalists are to blame about the forest fires or to blame for the forest fires because they have blocked logging which is meant there's been less thinning of the forest. How would you evaluate that argument?
1: I mean, forest management is not a, a one-size-fits-all type of situation. The way that you try to reduce catastrophically intense fires in an, a, a forest in my area is a lot different than the way you would do it in a forest in the Willamette Valley. Um, so I, I can't pretend to speak for the entire region and how, how forest should be managed all the way from from where we're seeing fires now all the way from British Columbia down to Mexico, it's, it's going to be different in different places. I think that there is a theme of buildup of fuels, but whether the kind of, uh, fuel, you know, whether logging is the best way to handle that or whether kind of a return to a more indigenous style of land management, which is frequent, uh, controlled burns would be a better approach. That's an area of scientific discussion for sure. Um, I, you know, I think there is a way that we could have in our region a forestry industry that would be sustainable. I do agree with that. But when we're looking at what's going on now, this is not because we haven't been logging enough. This is because we've been pumping fossil fuels into the air for four decades, and well, for far longer than that. But this is because, I mean, this is fundamentally because of climate change and the changes to our climate system.
4: You say, and I'm quoting in your article, we are the most confined by the inequality, selfishness, and greed that created this moment. Say more or explain.
1: So, I mean, one thing that's really frustrating for me, you know, watching my kids bounce around in the house and not be able to go outside, thinking about farm workers in the Rogue Valley out in this, um, you know, thinking about everybody who is forced to work outside, breathing this in, is that everybody knew this was going to happen. I mean, this, you know, discussion about the intense forest fires being a result of climate change was in government reports dating back to the 80s. We know from some great journalistic investigation that fossil fuel companies knew about the dangers of climate change and and specifically about fire danger going back decades. So the fact that we did very little, close to nothing about it to prevent it, that was a choice. That was a choice made by people in power, people who are executives at fossil fuel companies, politicians who are um, making uh, their living being friendly to executives at fossil fuel companies, and so on. There's, In a very real sense, there's, a, there's sort of a list of powerful uh, people who decided not to do anything about this because ultimately they thought they would be okay they could continue to make money off of the fossil fuel economy and that they would be able to have uh, tight-fitting windows. They would be able to have air conditioning. They would be able to get on a plane and go to New Zealand if really it's the fan. And so they decided that this risk was worth it, and we are now suffering. And that makes me really angry.
4: Emma, you've got a book coming out next year. I think it's called Wild Souls. Congratulations, Congratulations on your Atlantic article. That is great. And Tell also, congratulations on progress on the book. Tell us about the book.
1: So The book is really taking a look at, at wild animals in, in this world that we have so thoroughly affected. It started with the question of whether animals like wolves that we have carefully reintroduced and are now kind of intensively managing, whether those animals even count as wild anymore, if they've all got radio collars on and we, know, and we can see where they are on a, on a computer screen. And it kind of evolved from there into a broader look at how can we do right by non-human animals in this changing world? Does that mean leaving them alone, or does it sometimes mean helping them out? Uh, Should we be feeding polar bears? There's a lot of really complicated ethical questions. So that's what I'm taking a look at in this upcoming book. Um, it's, it's, It's interesting to me that sometimes... what's doing sort of what's good for animal rights or animal welfare conflicts with doing right right by the environment. And that can be some really sticky stuff because usually people who love the environment also love animals. And so making those kind of tough trade-offs can be ethically tricky.
4: There's an example of one of those trade-offs. And as you think on that just for a moment, I know that everybody, I mean, I can at least speak for myself, when I have seen the pictures of these fires, with a deer or maybe a couple of them in water, surrounded by flames with an orange sky, when I think about how much habitat has been destroyed, when I think about how, when I think about the coyote that was running down the street near my street, I'm sure just freaking out, wondering why the coyote couldn't find a place that wasn't uh, that was outside the smoke. Uh, I, I, anybody who hasn't felt. About the animals, or heck, the koala bears in Australia last year, uh, is somebody that doesn't have the same kind of compassion? I think probably a lot of our listeners do. But give us an example of where the uh, treatment of animals and the treatment of the environment diverge.
1: Yeah, so I mean that the fires are a great example because obviously it's a, it's really heartbreaking to think about the amount of suffering going on in, in in the animal world when there are fires like this. When there are fires, so. And the smoke is so inescapable, Um, you know, a deer or a coyote cannot get in their car and drive to Salt Lake City. So they are stuck. Um, and, 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 And there's a real sense in which we have created that suffering, we collectively as sort of humankind. And so the old way of thinking was always, if they're wild animals, the best thing you can do, the most ethical thing you can do is leave them alone. But what about in the case of of a catastrophic wildfire? Should we be leaving them alone, or should we be trying to en masse kind of rescue them, help them, uh, I don't know, give them shelter? Is that even a possibility? uh, It it opens up all these big questions. Um, Another thing I talk about a lot in the book is situations where you have a non-native animal that's come to a place and is causing ecological problems, like uh, a cat or a fox in Australia that's eating up a lot of native animals, or uh, rats on the Pacific Islands that are causing problems with local biodiversity, typically the way that conservation deals with that is they, they kill the non-native animals. They try to completely eradicate them, often with poisons that are really quite unpleasant. So that's a real tough case for me. If something is going to go extinct, and the only way to save it is to poison millions of cats or foxes or rats, is that okay to do? How do you balance those two things?
4: How about pythons in Florida?
1: Yeah, that's another tricky one. I mean, you know, anytime you have a non-native creditor that's, that's, that's causing ecological changes, you know, I tend to think that we shouldn't reach for the gun first, that we should sit down and sort of say, okay, what are the ecological changes that this, this new addition is causing? And can we live with them or are they so horrible that we're going to have to become executioners here? And, you know, it, it's an o- open question for me whether the python has so far driven any native animals extinct or whether it's just decreasing their numbers. And ultimately, it's important to realize that we, we heap a lot of blame on animals like the python. A, they don't know they're in the wrong place. They're not bad guys. And B, uh, it was massive development in the area, in and around the Everglades, that ultimately pushed that ecosystem to the breaking point. It's humans who pave the way for these uh, non-native animals to have such big consequences.
4: And that's, of course, the essence of your story, that if we break it, how do we buy it? If we mess with nature, what is the way... That we try to, do we just put all the animals in shelters or in zoos and say, well, at least there's some still animals? Uh, ultimately, what do we do with nature if we've already messed with nature? I want to say thank you so much for joining us. Emma, any closing word from you? Where will we be able to check out your book? Anywhere you buy books. I know you can check out your article. The Atlantic, in the Atlantic, the article is The West Has Never Felt So Small. Any closing word or anything you want to plug?
1: Yeah, I would just say that everybody out there who's stuck inside today or who's outside breathing this, um, you know, we're all sort of in this together, even though a lot of us are apart because of the pandemic and the smoke. And if you feel angry and and a certain amount of despair right now, that is totally normal. And we're in this together. And you should take that anger and that despair and you should use that as fuel for action.
4: Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much.
1: All right. Speak with you later.
0: Thanks to Mike, Greg, and Emma for joining The Local, and thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown, in about 30 minutes. Thanks for subscribing and giving a five-star review, and thank you, democracy. Talk to you tomorrow. X-Ray.